Good morning, friends. Welcome to Bethany Northeast. It is a joy to be with you. And also a welcome to those who are joining us online. I do know that there are a couple folks who um, have recently had children put into their lives, and so they're often joining us online, and we want to welcome you as you're joining us. We're glad to be worshiping with you this morning uh, as we worship together and dive in. Uh, Just as Amy was saying, the idea of pilgrimage is to discover the way that God speaks and reveals God's self in the world around us and presses us into community with each other. And so as we do that, uh, we invite you to this journey with us, just as we've done in other places of the city, and we hope that you can join us uh, either on a Saturday or Sunday as we worship together. Today, we're continuing our series that we're calling An Invitation to Wholeness Through Christ. And specifically, we want to look at relationships today. How are our relationships with God impacted and shaped, and how does that impact and shape the relationship we have with other people? And so during the pandemic, we have all had to make choices about how we relate to each other. What's safe, what's not safe? Who's in my social circle? What's my bubble look like? Uh, How do I navigate family dynamics, conflicts, uh, just differences in opinion and ways of living? We've all had to ask and navigate those questions. We've had to make choices. So as we think about all of these challenges that we've had to navigate through, how do I relate with each other? How do I connect with each other? This text today speaks to how we can actually move and hold space, hold relationship well. And so as we go through this familiar text in perhaps an unfamiliar way, my hope is that the fullness of God is revealed in our lives, that we're spurred on to good work. And as we do that, join me for a word of prayer as we come to God's word and hear from him. God, we are grateful for the gift of this day, and we pray that this spoken word would be faithful to your written word, and that it would lead us to you, the living word, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Fill us with your spirit today, and speak to us in ways that impact how we live. We pray this with Christ, by the spirit, and everyone said, amen. Psalm 23 is one of if not the most often cited psalm in the Bible. Jewish people will say this every week when they practice Shabbat, normally during the third meal, but they might do it multiple times throughout the day, multiple times throughout the meal. might be after the first, second, and third meal. Eastern Orthodox Christians, they say this psalm, they recite this psalm every time they take the Eucharist. They come and they, uh, they recite this psalm together. For many expressions of Christianity, this is a key text during funerals. And so Catholics, Anglicans, Episcopalians, uh, all, they, they all have this in their prayer books during funeral time. It's a common, common psalm. Perhaps the most common. Beyond that, do you, you, know, do you know what ties Bach, Dvorak, Pink Floyd, Mahalia Jackson, Duke Ellington, 
Megadeth, The Grateful Dead, and Coolio together. You know, do you know what ties their musical literature together? Psalm 23, right? And so someone cue the strings, and then we'll start doing that song. Um, every one of these artists, there's a picture there, every one of these artists and composers have a song uh, that explicitly quotes and references Psalm 23. Every one of these artists. Across time, quite a diverse array of musicians. Psalm 23, again, is probably the most quoted psalm that we have in our scripture. And yet, in the familiarity, you know what happens? We have that phrase, like, familiarity breeds contempt. Sure, but I think more often than not, familiarity breeds complacency. We can come to something familiar and say, got it all figured out. Nothing new here. I know what's said. And as we do that, I hope we don't come to the text in that way. This, again, is a familiar text. But it can speak to us in unique ways. And so, as we read this text, I'd like for us to do this uh, in... In, with the passage today. I'd love for us to read this together. It's going to be on the screen, six verses. I found it ironic to just think, I'm going to be preaching about relationships, but then as we engage the text, just go one direction. So let us engage the text together. Let us read it together. And we're going to be reading from the ESV translation, Psalm 23, um, verses 1 through 6. And then after, let's take 30 seconds and just pause, meditate on the text. Again, if it's one that we've heard before, one that's familiar, listen for ways that it is perking up in your spirit. What is new about it? What is being revealed in this reading today in this time? And so let us read this together. Uh, Let's get it on the screen there, and we'll go together. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You repair a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. The cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pause and reflect, friends. Amen. In our reading of this text together, I want to 
solicit an answer or two, if you're willing to share, what stuck out to you as you engaged this text? Probably not the first time you've heard it, but in this reading today, has something stuck out to you in your engagement of it? Any takers, any thoughts? Say that again, Margie. God is enough. Thank you, Margie. Others? Guides for his sake. It's a good word. Think? Mm. Shall not want or crave, but then also fear and how that's held intention in the psalm. Thank you, Thane. Bill? God can be fun. That's a good word, too. Susan? Well, that's a great segue because <laughs> that is brilliant, Susan, as we engage. The observations that are coming out of the group, right? speaks to us. Because as Susan's pointing out, this first portion of the psalm, notice that it starts with talk about God. Right? It starts with talking about God. If you're in your bulletin and you're filling out the, uh, the blanks there, your first one is, this psalm begins with talk about God. In these first three verses, notice the nature of relationship that David starts the psalm with. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now here it is, right? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. All of this, descriptive. All describing and talking in the third person. The psalm begins with talking about God. If we look at that first verse even more granularly, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What I'm about to say might seem like an exaggeration, but hear me out. How we understand this first verse gives us insight to how we hold relationship with God in every other facet of our lives. And on a fundamental level, how we understand this verse changes how we can read the text and how the text reads us. This verse is crucial. So, growing up, my understanding of this passage was sketched out as a pretty authoritarian, top-down, no-nonsense understanding of God presented in this psalm. If the Lord is my shepherd, then carrying the metaphor forward, I am a sheep. And in the expression of Christianity that formed me, uh, we, we like to talk and emphasize the importance of God and God's will over and above my life. And so while we talked about God, we would tend to place God's will in competition with my will, right? So when the text says, I shall not want, our spirituality would tend to focus on ridding ourselves of our own desires, right? I shouldn't have any desires or wants so that I can do the will of God. Less of me, more of God, right? And for our community, having desires, having longings, 
that was a bad thing. Our approach to holiness, growing up, again, holiness, Pentecostal tradition, our approach to holiness was about how we hold relationship with ourselves and keep the, the distractions of the world from impacting my relationship with Jesus. To say it differently, what would frame the, the spirituality that formed me was uh, understanding that God is God, and we are not. So if we want to be faithful, lose yourself and find God. All of God, none of me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. When we read it this way, we tended to read it as a command about how to live a holy life. And holiness was defined and based on things, activities, and people that we were separated from. Holiness was separation from others. So be set apart for the world. This was the faith community that formed me. Perhaps you resonate. Maybe you don't. But the contrast is also, when I was growing up, we had sheep. And the relationship we had with our sheep was not at all like the relationship we sketched out from the faith community and that they framed for what it means for the Lord to be a shepherd and us to be sheep. Because sheep are not robots. They have preferences, wants, desires. And so successful shepherding is not a diminishment of sheep, but it's rather the cultivation of the herd, the cultivation of sheep. And so a quick note about sheep. We're going to get agricultural here. Sheep are known as low-strata grazers. Low-strata grazers. That means that they eat low grass, not like goats, which are known as multi-strata grazers. If we have blackberry problems like we do in the Pacific Northwest, get a goat. They'll eat up high and down low. A sheep will not do that. They want to eat low grass. And so we provided for our sheep. They always had food. They were well taken care of, even during a negative 30 winter day, right? Like super cold, still had food. They didn't lack for a single thing. But when it started to get that transition from uh, winter to spring, you could always see like the herd is getting antsy because they want to be grazing. But there's not like the grass that's just coming out after spring is baby grass. And if you let them eat that right away, you have no grass for the rest of the year. And so they have desires. They're wanting to eat. They're wanting to go and graze and pasture graze. But we had to make decisions about, no, we're going to provide for you in another way, in a different way. You're not going to lack for anything. But that doesn't mean that we don't want to honor your desire to be a sheep, to eat, to press in, to do the things that give you life, which is to graze and grow wool, right? Like, that's essentially what they did. So here's the distinction that this story brings for us. There's a world of difference between not having any wants and not wanting for anything. Right? There's a world of difference between not having any wants and not wanting for anything. When we read verse 1, I shall not want, in the ESV, it's tempting in our familiarity with this text to blow by the opening line, to read it or grasp it without standing under it. But consider what this passage is saying about God. When we read, I shall not want, in a way that forbids my wanting, that equates our desires or longings with uh, 
with being bad and it separates us. It puts us at odds with God. It puts us in competition with God. If we start at the bottom of the psalm with this thread in mind, right, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever is a ridding of what uh, we desire, a ridding of who we've been created to be. And so we achieve faithful Christian life by uh, submitting ourselves to the Lord, right? by following the will of God. In this model, we'll call this the ridding ourselves ridding us of ourselves model, as humans, our agency and God's agency are always in competition, if that's the model we're using to engage this psalm. Again, since the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That means I should not want. Wanting, longing, desire, not good things. Now, a question for us is, does this description, does this depiction of God through the metaphor Reflect the fullness of God that's revealed to us through the witness of Christ. Does it? What is another way that we can read this verse and understand it in light of the revelation of Jesus all through the scriptures? It's important to note that the ESV translation that we read from earlier, it's crafted with particular theological background, commitments, understandings, and traditions in mind. So in truth, every translation of the Bible is formed with this, right? There's editorial boards and translation theory that we could have that conversation if you'd like to. Um, But the ESV is crafted with certain theological convictions in mind. But consider this reading of the same verse. Psalm 21, or 23, verse 1. This one from the NIV. It's a little different in its phrasing. It says, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. The NIV translates the Hebrew from a different theological angle, different theological perspective. And it contrasts the ESV. Again, there's a world of difference between not having any wants and then not wanting for anything. And this is a big deal to grasp because when we do these first three verses, uh, it changes and it leads to our next blank that we're following along. So if our first blank is that this psalm invites us to talk about God, it talks about God in verses 1 through 3, Notice that shift that Susan pointed out for us. In verse 4, it moves to talking to God. Right? It starts with talking about God. It moves to talking to God. Verse 4. And how we talk about God shapes how we will talk to God. That's what the psalm is framing for us. If you would, take a look back at verse 4 and notice the shift in language. We have that move from, he does this, he does that, he does this, to, but you are with me. Your rod, your staff, you comfort me. What do we make of this? What does this mean? Why is this significant in any way? This matters, friends, because it stresses that God is innately relational. The Christian faith is relational. 
within the many different expressions of Christianity, especially for us in the West, we've been formed to think of our relationship to God predominantly in proposition. And so in our preaching, teaching, discipleship, prayer, worship, we've tended to spend most of our time talking about God, just like the first three verses do. We talk about God. We've inherited a propositional faith. But as we track the progression of speech within this psalm, don't miss that this psalm starts propositionally, and then it moves to talking about a relational faith. It invites us to talk to God. Think about it like this. Len Sweet, Leonard Sweet, he's a UMC theologian and semiotician. He notes there are 21 original prayers that Jesus prayed in the Gospels. 21 of them. Every one of those prayers begins by addressing God as Father, or God in a name, God through relationship, not through philosophy. And yet, if we look at all the creeds in Christian tradition, they all, believe, they all begin with, I believe, and I believe a statement. But Jesus begins with our Father. He goes on and he says, Propositional faith wants us to fall in line. Relational faith wants us to fall in love. Christians aren't people who follow Christianity. Christians are people who fall in love with Christ. Yet sometimes the church can spend more time trying to get people to follow Christianity than fall in love with Christ. Are you starting to get what this psalm is framing for us? What it's doing within us as we read it from the angle of relationship? Starting at the top, Psalm 23 begins with description and proposition. It starts there. It begins with talking about God. But as a goal, Psalm 23 isn't only trying to give us information about God. It's trying to start with description and then move to transmission, shifts to direct communication with the God who is a divine relationship. It gives us an example of how we can talk with God. So Psalm 23 describes the move from propositional to relational faith. And then it challenges us to examine what the nature of our own faith might be. And this is where it leads us to the third blank today. We started with talking about God, talking to God, and ultimately, the psalm wants us to talk like God. It starts by describing. It moves to relationship. And then it goes to transfiguration. It wants to form us to talk like God. It wants to form us into Christ-likeness. As we read this psalm, notice that it weaves together the imagery of shepherd and sheep. But then, at the end, you have a table in the presence of enemies. The most common food at the feast, the big feast, it's lamb. It's sheep. You've moved through the transition from the God being a shepherd to a God inviting us to feast on the sheep. 
but not just for our edification. It's in the presence of those that are enemy. And this is the power of the psalm, how it speaks to us. It weaves together the imagery of shepherd and sheep to connect to the image of the paschal lamb. And it invites us to the feast. So when we get to verse 5, it says, again, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. This meal isn't prepared to the exclusion of our enemies. Instead, like the table at the Last Supper, remember, Jesus, he sat with his disciples, his friends, his betrayer, all at the same time. And the shepherd who is talked about at the beginning of Psalm 23 becomes the lamb slain for all redemption in the world, for the nourishment of the world. This is how the psalm ends. Kurt Willems is a pastor and theologian. He used to be in this area. I think he moved up to Canada. He describes this moment in vivid ways. He says, Sometimes Christians draw boundaries and call it holiness. But Jesus crosses over arbitrary lines in the sand to show us that sometimes holiness embraces ambiguity and dissonance for the sake of bringing divergent people and theological opinions to the same table, a table that is built out of the wood from the cross. How might this psalm transform and transfigure how we hold and maintain relationships? It does so in a couple ways. It does so by pressing us from propositional faith to relational faith. It does so by moving us from talking about God to talking to God. It does so by modeling and inviting us to begin talking like God. And in this, it encourages us to be people of goodness and mercy, proclaiming the house of the Lord forever. That last verse. As we think about the way this whole chapter moves us on a journey, a journey of faith, and a journey towards other. It opens up questions for us that says, well, what's the nature of the faith that I hold? As we think about communing in the presence of our enemies, and as we also recognize that this psalm is one that is preached throughout Christian tradition, at funerals, lament, it's a widely used psalm. It felt... I wrestled with this all last night as I was preparing to think about, in light of news that we've heard yesterday from New York, and then beyond that, the news of the world that's holding relationship with each other. How do we talk about relationship in a way that isn't just platitudes in a time when relationships are broken all around us. In one way, I do believe that 
moving from talking about God to talking to God to talking like God is one way to engage the culture, to engage our culture, to find the fullness of God in other, and to share feasts in the presence of enemies. That's one thing to do. I was still wrestling with it when I came and I sat this morning. I do believe that it would be prudent for us, it would be appropriate for us to take a moment to pray and to just hold space for all the broken relationships that we encounter that might be interpersonal, that might be on a personal level, that also might be broader on a systemic level. It might be broader in terms of the world and how we relate with the world. And we might not feel like we can engage the world in a whole bunch of ways. But we can start here. We can start with the relationships we do have. And we can start talking like God, not just talking about God. When we do that, we start to make the kingdom of God present in the world. But not just the kingdom of God. Ada Maria Asasia Diaz, she's a, um, a Latin American theologian. She makes a distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God. What is the thing that actualizes heaven on earth? It's the kingdom. It's the recognition that every person is created in the image of God and we share kinship with them. If we recognize that image, then we'll recognize our neighbor. That's not to discount the image of kingdom, but when that power or that image has been misused, the kingdom of God recenters us to think about how we hold relationship well. So join me, friends, in prayer. Let us pray if it's for our personal relationships, if it's for something broader. Let us pray all the same and know that God hears our prayers. Join me in prayer, friends. God, we are grateful for your coming. We do say in faith that you will make all things new that you are making all things new. And yet, as we live and breathe and have our being, we recognize that that is not the case for everyone in the world. And we lament, and we hold space for those deeply affected by loss of life, by loss of relationship, we say, come quickly, Lord. Make all things new. We do await for the time when you will call us to your banquet table. The one where we will sit with folks that we used to call foe. But who you say and turn to and say, friend. Reminded of the way that 
in the way you engage Judas, the first word you say to him after he betrays you is, friend, do what you need to do. In the midst of brokenness and broken imaginations, broken relationships and broken lives, Lord, be our creator. Hover over the chaos in our lives. Make goodness out of nothing. We know you are able. Creation begins in this way, with you hovering over the depths. Make us new today, Lord. And form us into your image. May we talk about you and talk to you, but ultimately, may we talk like you. That is the desire of our hearts. And so press us into that work and do it by the power of your spirit. We pray this with Christ and his church. And everyone said, amen.